Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me back on the podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. It's been a while. Lot, lots happened. Yeah, it's been a minute since we talked. Uh, listeners probably have noticed that we've been off the air a little bit. Um, that is, I guess, mostly my fault uh, because I am sadly no longer a Georgian. Um, I got a job in the D.C. area and moved back up to Virginia, just outside of D.C., to, to take on a new job. So sadly, as it relates to our topics for today, I'm not going to be a Georgia voter in the fall. Um, I'm disappointed to not be able to vote to send Senator Warnock back to Washington um, but I've still kind of stayed t- on top of what's going on back home, uh, miss everybody back home. And I'm happy to be back with you today, Luke, to talk politics for the first time in like a month. Yeah, it, it's, it's great to be back. I hate, I hate that, um, we've had to be off. I've hate that you've had to go, but you know, when, when the sirens all of D- DC calls, many people, uh, are able to say no. And <laughs> I understand. Yeah. It keeps bringing me back. Keeps bringing me back. Um, so on today's race, we're on today's episode, we're going to take a look at the top of the ticket for the, uh, 2022 midterm races. Uh, listeners have probably already seen or heard about debates between governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams in the governor's race, along with Shane Hazel, the libertarian candidate and, uh, Reverend Warnock, uh, incumbent Senator and Herschel Walker, Warnock's challenger. They engaged in their one and probably only debate of this cycle, um, in Savannah last in, in the last 10 days or so. Um, so we're going to talk about those debates and kind of where those races sit. We're going to do that today, and then we're going to come back either later this week or early next week and talk about more on the down-ballot races, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor. There are a lot of interesting contests down-ballot in Georgia this time around. Um, so we're going to dedicate more time. Those races do deserve more time than we can give them today. Um, so we're going to dedicate more time to those races in our next episode. But Luke, let's start with the the Senate race here. And um, this one to me, coming up as we get closer to Election Day, and now that we've already entered the period where early vote is starting, I had kind of wondered if we would get to a point in this race where Herschel Walker, for all of the baggage that we've talked about before and that has been reported on extensively, including his violent past, his threats to harm police officers, his uh, lies about his business record, um, the endless stories that have really come out and the and the two bombshell reports that have come out recently that he uh, allegedly paid for an abortion for uh a woman who also separately is the mother of one of his other children, one of the other children that he did not disclose publicly. Um, I had wondered that if all of this sort of like massive bad news would eventually put Herschel Walker in a position where he was kind of uh, unacceptable even to Republican voters in the way that Roy Moore was when he ran for Senate in Alabama, and Alabama, a very deep, deep red state, briefly sent Democrat Doug Jones to the U.S. Senate because of just how unacceptable Roy Moore was to that electorate. I kind of wondered if we'd land in that uh, place with Herschel Walker. And this debate to me seemed to put Walker in a strong position to actually make this a race and really challenge Senator Warnock. What do you think about just kind of the where this race is right now. Do you think this is going to be a competitive one? And, and what did you learn about it from the debate? 
Well, I, I think you... I, I want to agree with how you're characterizing it, Kyle, but I think it's more... This is how it's always been. It's always been competitive. It's always been close. I mean, you know, of course, there's... You can never read too much into one poll. There were some polls that had Warnock way ahead, but most of them, on average, has had this race really close with Warnock with a slight lead. And I think that is because as bad as the allegations against uh, Walker are, I I, I think, one, very rightfully, the allegations against Moore were worse uh, in many ways. And two, I think it's, it's, it's baked into Walker's narrative because, as I mentioned from the beginning with him, he has been admirable in his, you know, forthrightness with the fact that he's faced a lot of mental health issues. And he was pretty transparent about doing some very horrible things far prior to any rumblings of him running for office. And so I think to some extent, uh, that part of his narrative had already been, you know, in the ether about him, uh, to, to, for many people. And I think that has actually helped him significantly in this race, both because it somewhat has neutralized the effectiveness of those allegations and also has given him a shield for when he lies about basically everything else. He can always come back to, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I've been very transparent that I have these issues uh, with mental health and, uh, and I'm a strong supporter of, you know, people searching for mental health services. And so I say all that to say that erratic behavior is something I think voters kind of accept from Walker and that they know that his past is not perfect. And on the abortion allegation issues, I think what, you know, makes that one difficult to um, really affect uh, Walker in the same way that it affected Roy Moore is that for, you know, pretty much all voters who really, really care about, uh, you know, pro uh, life issues, Walker is going to vote the right way. And so I know some people uh, who the fact that if they believed the allegation, and I think that's a really important part of it, they have to actually believe that he paid for an abortion. That would probably change their mind and keep them from voting for him. But I think the vast majority of voters who life is a big issue for, it's good enough for them the fact that Walker will pull the lever the right way and raise his hand and vote for, you know, abortion bans and support abortion bans rather than his own personal behavior. And so I, I think that's why he's still in this race, despite this litany of allegations, is that he either successfully defused them years ago, or it's it's kind of par for the course and people don't care about his personal life as much as his voting behavior. Yeah, and I think for the the people who would show up to vote for him because he will vote for abortion bans. And he, you know, has previously said that he supported a a federal abortion ban with absolutely no exceptions. In the debate, he kind of backtracked a little bit and said that he supported the uh, six-week abortion ban that's been put into law, signed into law by Governor Kemp in Georgia. Um, That law does have some exceptions that he previously said that he did not want to be a part of abortion policy in this country. Um, I think for the voters that are happy with how he will vote on that issue, they were always going to vote for him anyways. I think the people who might be turned off by 
his uh, violent history, who might be turned off by the uh, allegation that he paid for an abortion previously, um, are the, also the kind of people that you know maybe are more moderate, maybe have voted for Democrats in the past, maybe even voted for Joe Biden in the last election, um, but who are deeply frustrated with the state of the country, with the state of the economy, with the the rate of inflation that that we have and uh, are part of the reason that Joe Biden's approval ratings are so low in the state. And so I thought it was um, Herschel Walker, at least for the first time, I think in this campaign demonstrated the ability to it's sort of in a bare minimum way, drive a message against Senator Warnock by tying him to Joe Biden, by saying sort of flipping Warnock's often repeated phrase that he does everything for Georgia uh, Walker at one point hit him and said, well, you vote for Joe Biden, vote with Joe Biden 96% of the time. So do you do things for Joe Biden or do you do things for Georgia? And he actually drove that attack pretty well. And given how low the expectations are for him, um, I thought he benefited from that. And he did that with an audience in mind of people who uh, would need some other reason to vote for Herschel Walker who would probably be turned off by his past. And if Herschel stands there as sort of a, um, a pushback to Joe Biden and the record that he, uh, that Herschel Walker has been so critical of out of Democrats in Washington. Um, I do think that that, you know, sort of in a bare minimum way has served his campaign pretty well in the, the home stretch. Yeah, I agree. And we're going to talk a lot about this uh, when we get into the gubernatorial debate. But Walker has a very clear fire Warnock message. And it's and while he is very hard to follow on a lot of other things, when he is focused on, you know, my what his problems with Warnock is and Warnock's policies like he does very well. Now, he, for, you know, on the curve that uh, we, we have for how Herschel Walker speaks generally. So I, I think he definitely did a much better job than Warnock did on articulating why, you know, he thinks that Warnock should be fired versus why Warnock thinks he should stay. Um, and I, I think it's just because Walker very clearly would come back to there's a lot of things going wrong in the country. Inflation is super high. Everyone's kind of freaked out. Biden's in charge. Democrats control everything. Warnock supports Biden 96% of the time, and he isn't caring about you or your problems, and he's only just caring about Biden. And while that's a really simple simple message for a lot of people, I think just seeing the fact that Walker could pull off that message and express that sentiment was enough. Any time that he kind of got away from that key message, he—I mean—he was saying insane stuff, like not providing any federal dollars to any colleges that raised prices at all. Which you know, uh, you and I know the cost of college more than just about anybody, and we've we've shaped our entire lives around dealing with uh, paying for college. Yeah, but we're still paying the, for it. Yeah, and and I'll be paying it for it for many many years. But like Same. that policy is insane and very stupid. And I, I think one of the frustrations with this race for me is that for many voters, uh, the the like key votes is what's most important to them. 
what is Walker or we're not going to do on an abortion vote, on a Supreme Court vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just absolutely no weight given to what I think is actually more important for the state of Georgia overall versus the country, which is like, who is going to be there when there's negotiations about trying to get, you know, a Rivian plant or getting a microchip processing plant in Georgia versus somewhere else? Who's going to be effective in keeping our military bases open, which are incredibly important to the economies of Georgia? Herschel Walker is going to be very ineffective in those situations because he's either going to, one, not care about it, or two, even if he does, not be very good at navigating those issues because he's not had any success in anything other than football, unfortunately. And so I, I think I just wish there was more attention paid to these local issues. And I will say for Warnock's credit, he tried to bring it to that a lot. And I think he was he did a good job when he did bring it to that. But unfortunately, due to I think the focus of the moderators and due to uh, the limitations and what Herschel Walker could be asked, uh, it, it, and expected to actually answer in a coherent way, I, I think that really limits the efficacy of this debate and the value to Georgians because so much of the focus was on stuff that, while makes headlines, is not as important to the job in the long term. I also do think that Reverend Warnock did a pretty good job of driving what I think is the message that Democrats need to drive in this election cycle, that they will act to reduce costs for people that I don't, I don't think you can run from inflation. I don't think you can pretend that it's not a big deal or try to make it somebody else's problem. I think you have to be clear about what you have done and what you will do to address inflation. And Warnock, I thought, thought was his most effective when he said, Democrats in Washington passed the Inflation Reduction Act and two of Warnock's proposals, which were to cap the cost of prescription drugs for seniors and Medicare and to cap the cost of um, insulin for some patients, uh, that he supported those provisions and those provisions were in the final bill and those things are going to work to reduce people's costs in the short and in the long run. And that if you send Reverend Warnock back to Washington, he will work to do more because that insulin cap provision was not, did not turn out to be very uh, wide ranging. There's a lot of people that are left out of that costs on other essential items like food and gas and things that still need to be addressed. Um, and Democrats did succeed at least on energy costs in passing in the inflation reduction act, some policies that would drive down energy costs over the long term by uh, giving people more options of renewable energy, more options to increase the energy efficiency of their homes, um, things like that. But those are things that are going to matter in the long run and Democrats needed to do more and, early next year and the next Congress should do more to reduce costs in the short run. And I think that when Warnock just said, I have put these policies into effect by being in the Senate and I will go back and I will do more, that I think is when he's at his most effective um, because he's just being clear about what he will do. And I think something that he has been effective at and something that actually Governor Kemp has been effective at in the governor's race is to lay out exactly what they will do, then they do it, and then they come back and they say that they did it. And it's very basic, but it's very straightforward, and it's effective in driving a message about things people care about. Um, and so I'd like to see more of that from Senator Warnock uh, in the closing uh, state of this race. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I, I definitely think that is when Warnock was at his most effective and trying to tie down the fact that Walker is complaining about issues, but then has absolutely no solution to those issues. And the college affordability one was a good example of what happens when Walker is, you know, asked to state his opinion on a problem. He comes, he, he will state a solution, but it's an insane solution that will not work or help anybody. And so I think on that, on that front, it's unfortunate that there was not more time for these two uh, to talk about their actual policy positions on things other than abortion. And it's difficult. It's always difficult in debates. Uh, But I I just feel like the moderators did not have much control over this debate. And there's a lot of interrupting. And, and, And unfortunately, that went both ways. Both Warnock and Walker were interrupting each other a lot. And it was difficult for them to move on from topics. Uh, and I, I think to some extent that that is on the moderators as much as the candidates. And I think the cost of that is that there was a lot less time spent on actual substance of what are you going to do in the job of senator besides the super obvious, you know, vote Republican line versus vote Democratic line and get down into the actual issues that are facing Georgians and how you either have solutions to that or not, because at least with Warnock, you know where he stands on things, you know the types of solutions that he will support, which, you know, are more, you know, more government intervention, more government funding, uh, trying to expand Medicaid, et cetera, whereas uh, Walker, it, I mean, it's very unclear where he stands on anything except the very high-level Republican issues, you know, with abortion, the fact he'll support Republican-leaning Supreme Court nominees, but really, much it's very unclear beyond that. Like, what would he do on anything? And I think that is a real uh, shame that we don't have any good idea of of what he would support. Well, and like you said, he's ne- also never demonstrated in just about anything in his adult life the ability to do almost anything effectively. Like when you have a track record of failure in your businesses and in your personal life, and all the things that we talked about before you know, there's just no guarantee. I mean, I look at Senator, like somebody like Senator Tommy Tupperville over in Alabama, who, uh, the only thing I can, you know, think of that he's done is he uttered some truly horrific racist comments at a Trump rally a few weeks ago. And, you know, he's somebody who also was a football coach and didn't have any political background or political experience. And as far as I'm aware, hasn't really done anything uh, useful in the Senate since he's got there. And so I think the question for Georgia voters is, do they want somebody who, uh, you know, can basically be a caricature of conservative culture war uh, issues? um, Or do they want somebody who can actually work and get things done in Washington? I think that answer is pretty clear. Um, What did you think, though, of the way that abortion was handled in this debate? I thought it was interesting that Warnock, and he's even been more firm in this than Stacey Abrams has, he gets the question on abortion and he goes back to his talking point that the patient's room in the doctor's office is too small for a patient, her doctor, and the government. And that is basically his answer even when he's asked if there are any legal limits on abortion that he would accept. Um, you know, He is effectively saying no. You know, He says that you know, politicians should not be invited in that room at all and should have no 
role in that decision making. Even Stacey Abrams has uh, now accepted a limit on abortion that she would accept that is, uh, I think, much more in line with with where Roe was and um, something that's not totally unlimited. Um, what did you think of how that is going to play? Because that, that got a lot more focus in the Senate debate, I thought, than in the governor's debate. So this highlights what I think is Warnock's worst problem. And honestly, well, it's second worst problem for the rest of the democratic ticket. Cause the, the, the rest of the democratic ticket is not incumbents. And so their biggest problem is that they do not have a fire. My opponent message, but the first, so Warnock's biggest problem, everybody else's second biggest problem is, I don't know who prepped every single Democrat candidate this year. I don't know why the overriding advice from all the Democratic debate preppers was, don't answer the question under any circumstance. But that that is my key frustration in how Democrats handled these debates because people are not dumb. People see through it. And I think this was especially harmful for Warnock because people have such a good uh, opinion of him personally and it makes him seem evasive because that is an easy question to get an answer to. And I, I th- it's just so obvious to all voters that when you answer a question that way, what you are doing is trying to obfuscate the fact that you have a position that you think would be bad to articulate. Because I think voters respect candidates who are authentic and tell them the truth, and even if they disagree with them, are still willing to support them. And, I mean, frankly, any voter in Georgia who would would have voted for Warnock but for the art, you know, him articulating a position similar to Abrams and saying that, you know, I support Roe versus Wake. I think that was a pretty good compromise. Something like that seems reasonable to me. He could have said that. And if that was the, like, I don't think there's any, but any voter out there to him saying that would have been a deal breaker for them. You know, it's just like that is the easy stock answer. That's like probably true to what his actual beliefs are and say that, you know, that seems like a good floor. And, and I just don't understand why, None of the Democratic candidates could answer half the questions they got asked that were really easy for them to answer. And it's just, it, it makes you look really inauthentic and it makes you look like you're acting like a politician, which to Warnock has, like, one of his big strengths is that he's been the Reverend Warnock rather than Senator Warnock in many people's eyes. And I just feel like that is one of the things that really frustrated me about his performance in this debate. It wasn't nearly as bad in... Uh, the the empty podium debate uh, where, uh, you know, the Atlanta Press Club debate where Walker didn't show up, but Warnock did and the Libertarian showed up. Um, he came off a lot less politician-y, except on this question again, where he just like refuses to provide what I think is the super easy answer of, I support Roe versus Wade. Um, and even, you know, if he went further than that, uh, then he could have said that too. But, you know, it's just, it's just not answering the question I don't think ever helps, especially on this issue, because people will imagine whichever answer they don't like when you do that, is my opinion, especially on a really hot bugging emotional issue like abortion. And so I I think it's uh, much smarter to, you know, just be honest about what your position is. That's funny. I totally disagree. Um, I have thought that this is quite a clear answer, actually. I know in some sense it feels like he's not 
answering the question. My only critique of his answer actually would have been, um, because I think in that, this was in the, the debate that he and Herschel did together, um, the moderator did try to basically say, pick a point at which you think uh, abortion limits would be appropriate. And I think that, uh, you know, he, he gave his standard line, and then I think he could have used that opportunity to say questions about what line is appropriate means that a politician and not a doctor makes a decision when a woman is having a miscarriage what healthcare options are going to be available to her. You know, I think he could have demonstrated how extreme, how radical some of these Republican proposals are and been very clear and very direct about that and, and use that as substantive support for the idea that politicians should have no role whatsoever. Because I do think that, you know, Republicans will take that open-endedness. And I remember Kelly Leffler used to do this very clearly um, and say, well, Democrats support abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. And, you know, Democrats would sort of, you know, kind of hem and haw and not really have a clear response to that. And I think that, uh, Democrats could be clearer in that response to push back on that, to say at any point it should be a decision for a woman and her doctor um, and use that as an opportunity to show how radical Republican ideas are, are on that. So I, th- I actually thought he was in a pretty good place on that. Um, even though he continues to get that question, you know, he concluded that response by saying, uh, you have a choice between a senator who wants to control your life and a senator who wants to save your life, and I'm the one who wants to save your life. And I thought that that lands really well for people, you know, particularly after uh, Roe was uh, repealed under the Dobbs decision. Yeah, and I, I see that perspective on it. I think my primary problem is if his answer is, I don't think there should be any restrictions and that is solely a decision between a woman and her doctor, then he should say that <laughs> is, is what I'm saying. Because the way that he articulates it, I agree with, but I, I just think it, it just doesn't come off as answering the question. It comes off as evading the answer, the question. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that it sounds like a politician's answer sometimes. And that's right. why I think the clarity around the true stakes of that decision uh, would have been more useful from Senator Warnock. Right, because instead of us talking about, you know, we're not doing a very good job of articulating the dangers of Herschel's decision, he's on the defensive about his position. Because Herschel's position is, you know, depending on which day you catch him, uh, either the heartbeat bill or the, um, you know, all ban all the time and no abortion ever. And either one of those positions opens up women to very, very bad health complications, not to mention just the general, the general, uh, you know, hardship of pregnancy, because it's not easy. Uh, I, I just think it's a lost opportunity for him because he could very easily say, you know, I think this, you know, I think this should be a decision between a woman and her doctor. You know, and I don't think it should be up to politicians like Herschel Walker to ban abortions under all these scenarios where pretty much most Americans think that abortion is legitimate in those situations. And instead, he goes on a very long tangent about women and decision making and all this stuff that, while is good, I just think is not effective political messaging. Yeah. Because 
I think at the heart of it, it's trying to not say what his position is or make it hard, hard to nail down. Yeah. For fear that it'll be unpopular. Right. So let's move on to the governor's race. And Luke, I think the frame for the governor's race is a little bit different in that, you know, Herschel Walker appears to have made the Senate race competitive or at least confirmed what we thought from the beginning that that one was going to be competitive. I think in a sense, it sort of feels like Brian Kemp incumbent governor is pulling away from Stacey Abrams in the governor's race. Um, and that was just it, in general, my sense, and, and you can disagree, but that was my sense given the way that the debate between the two of them and libertarian candidate Shane Hazel played out the other night in that governor Kemp, I thought both did an excellent job in driving the core messages of his campaign in that debate. Um, and he didn't really have to take any sort of big shots at Stacey Abrams to try to, you know, he wasn't, he didn't seem like he was a candidate in a position to be making up ground. It was more so he had a lead, um, felt like he had a lead and, and that he wanted to, to hold on to it. Um, where do you think we are in the, in the governor's race? And, and why do you think there's such a big difference, at least a big perceived difference between the position that Reverend Warnock is in as the incumbent senator and where Stacey Abrams is as a challenging uh, candidate for governor? So I, I would characterize it slightly differently. I don't think Herschel has done anything to make this race competitive. I think he's managed to not do anything to make it any worse, basically. <laughs> because I think the reason why Warnock is ahead, I think is based 100% on Warnock's strengths as a candidate and Walker's weakness as a candidate. I think if literally anyone else was running against um, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, that I mean, if Brian Kemp, for example, or Jeff Duncan, or if Gary Black, who is our you know current but outgoing agriculture commissioner who ran against Herschel, was running against Walker right, or Warnock right now instead of Walker, Warnock would be losing. Uh, that that's that's where I would start is I, I think Warnock is only ahead because of how good of a candidate he is and how bad of one Walker is because the national environment is really, really terrible for Democrats. And I think Georgia is a purple state and the the swing voters we do have, uh, you know, we've talked about for how it's an inelastic electorate. The ones we do have, I think, but for Walker would probably be voting for a generic Republican person. So that that's the first thing. The second thing is, as I hinted at earlier, Abrams has not, a develop, has not developed a reason to fire Brian Kemp. And you know, I'm going to use presidential races just because they're easier, you know, not as much onboarding. You know, it's like in the successful, challenging incumbent president, you know, presidential campaigns, there is always a very clear, articulable one sentence. You need to fire the president because of X. You know, Bill Clinton, very famous. It's the economy stupid. HW has failed to manage the economy and doesn't care about you, average American. Fire him, hire me. I'll I'll get the economy working for the middle class. Joe Biden, very clear. This is a battle for the soul of America. Donald Trump is bad for America and hurting our values and doesn't represent our values. Fire him, hire me. I'll get everything calmed down and get us back on track. 
I don't know why Abrams once thinks that Brian Kemp should be fired besides here is my 35 page, you know, slide presentation that shows you that I'm better than him. And that is just, that's not an articulable emotional appeal uh, that really can get anyone fired up about changing course in a bad Democratic environment. Because there are Republican incumbents around the country who are facing really tough races right now. Like the governor of Oklahoma, a very red state. I think if anyone asked, like, is Oklahoma more Republican than Georgia, everyone would say absolutely. But like he's in a really hard race right now. And I think that is because, one, a lot of money <laughs> against him. But two, like there is a clear message and a clear reason of why some people think he should no longer be the governor of that state. And there's other examples around the country, too, on, on both sides of incumbents facing really tough races. And it's because they have their opponents have found a very clear, very concise reason why that person should no longer be in that job. And I don't know what Abrams' you know, reason is. And I, I, as someone who is smart as her, who has as much money as her, who has as many super talented people around her, it is just incredible to me that I don't know what her message is in this situation, in, in this situation of running against an incumbent. Because when you are running against, for an open seat, it is a comparison. It is, I want to do these things. My opponent wants to do these things. You know, I think my ideas are better. I think you should pick me. But when you're running against an incumbent, they have the advantage of the bully pulpit of the job. They have an actual record. It's not theoretical anymore. It is he has done things. Brian Kemp has been governor for four years. And I think it is just insane to me that Abrams doesn't have one or two or three things that she just narrows in on. And like Brian Kemp failed us because of X. Like, she just doesn't articulate that. She just articulates, like, I think I would be better. I think my plans work better. And it's just very frustrating to me because she isn't asking for our vote. She isn't asking for the job in a way that is easy to understand and articulate. And I know that she can do it. I just don't know why she isn't. Yeah, I to me, it's more so... Because I think you could watch that debate and you could pull out a few reasons that she would want governor Kemp to be fired. But she, I think, you know, because she is somebody who's a, she's brilliant. She's a very smart person. Um, and she brings to this race ideas and plans on just about every possible issue that Georgia and, and people in this state are facing. And I think she has just, I think gotten a little bit lost in the details and tried to be, I think a little, just like a little too clever at times, like her, her question for governor Kemp in the section of the debate where they get to ask each other questions was about, uh, minority contracting for black and brown owned businesses in the state. And there is a core sort of equity value to that, that she was trying to get at, but it felt a little bit lost in the details of, you know, when, what has the governor done on minority contracting and when did he do it and what has he not done? And it just like that to me felt kind of like a narrow way to go after that value that she was trying to demonstrate. And then her question for Shane Hazel was this really complicated question about the Chinese government purchasing farmland in rural Georgia 
and how the state of Georgia has allowed that to happen. And I got totally lost in the point that she was trying to make. And I bring up both of those questions in part because I have been an advocate for Democrats leading into problems with inflation and prosecuting a case that Democrats will do things to lower prices. And I do think that there is an opening there for Stacey Abrams to talk about lowering healthcare prices, lowering housing prices, and making education more affordable and more accessible. And she can highlight Governor Kemp's failure to act on those three issues. And if you listen very closely to that entire hour-long debate, you'll hear little snippets of where she did get a little criticism in on that. But I think this is where it comes back to message discipline and simplifying her message. She could have used a question to Shane Hazel, who I thought was a waste of space and a waste of time in this debate. And we can get to him later because I know you felt a little differently. Um, She could have used a question to Shane Hazel to attack Brian Kemp. And instead, she used a question to Shane Hazel on this obscure farm purchasing, farmland purchasing issue where she aligned herself with Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump. And I had no idea why she was doing that. Now, there probably is some real policy thing that is underlies that, and the state maybe probably should have been more uh, you know, interested in why the Chinese government is purchasing farmland. But like to most people, that is not a, a real issue in their lives. And so I think she got lost in some of the details in so many of these different ways that she has tried to be everything on every answer on every issue and has lost sight of that core message that I, I agree with you should be a message to fire Brian Kemp because he has not acted to reduce costs for Georgians. Um, and she's let that opportunity slip away to really prosecute that case in the highest profile venue of this race. Right. I I agree entirely. And this is, you hit on one of my other frustrations with all the Democrats debates and a lot of the issues that they've hit on, on the trail this cycle. I mean, so much of it is so obscure. I mean, you are just like talking about stuff that you have to do a 15 minute, you know, press conference, conference presser, and then you need someone to read, you know, read two white papers and, and then 14 AJC articles to even have half a clue of (laughs) what they're talking about. Because like you, I had absolutely no idea what Abrams was talking about with that question. And I just think it is just, it's just really odd to me that they're having this much trouble with it and and finding ways to create contrast and show, you know, what about Kemp's record that she thinks is bad. And I think part of this is because of how effective Brian Kemp is as a messenger and how effective he is and how smart he has been in tackling some big issues that have broad bipartisan support because it really, really neutralized some of the worst problems that the, you know, that Georgia government had coming out of the deal years. Because for, I mean, I think the biggest example is the teacher pay raises thing, which is just, you know, that, I mean, one, our teachers still aren't paid nearly enough, but it's really hard to say that Kemp does not care about that issue at all because he he did it. He got a pay raise through. He got significant money through. That's very helpful. And well, to be specific that. on Abrams's approach to that, she said at one point that she would do an $11,000 raise for teachers instead of a $5,000 raise that Kemp did on layaway. And I had no idea what she meant by that. Right. And all of it is too clever. 
one of the things I love about Abrams is I know if you ask her about any random topic, like she probably knows more about it than anybody else because she is very well read and she is very adept at policy. But I think as a messenger, as a campaigner, you have to focus on a message that everyone will immediately get. And, you know, just going back to Walker for a second, his fire Warnock message is so super clear. You understand it. It is, if you're someone who is sympathetic to that position, it, it hooks you immediately. Everything sucks right now. Biden's in charge. Warnock supports him 96% of the time. Fire him. Hire me. I won't, I won't be a pushover and won't let Joe Biden keep ruining everything. Super easy to understand. Abrams... I think it's great that she could answer that question about trying to bind land in Georgia. That again, I still have no idea what it's talking about. Um, I think that's great that she knows that, but I think also it's important for her to be relatable in her messaging and simple in her messaging. And Brian Kemp is super good at that. He is really, really good at just hitting people with simple talking points that pretty much everyone can follow. And then also effectively gets across if not his policy position, his policy vibes, you get an idea of like what he cares about and you get an idea about how he's going to approach things and that, you know, what he, what issues he cares about. And I, I, I think it's just difficult for me to wrap my head around what Abrams does care about because a lot of times, I think a good example of this is, um, how they talked about crime and how Brian Kemp, you know, was very effective, not always a hundred percent honest, at least as far as I'm aware, but he was effective in articulating his position. That's like, I think, you know, Democrats are, are soft on crime that they want to help criminals more than they want to help police. And I have done these things to support the cops and Abrams did not rebut that as effectively as I hope she would considering that she does support more funding for more officers as far as I understand. And she, she has not been nearly as radical on this issue as some people has tried, have tried to portray her. And since that is a question that I imagine any one of us could have predicted would come up, I, I it just is frustrating that the issues that are so clearly going to be brought up, the democratic response is not nearly as sharp and refined as it need. It has to be for us to be effective in, uh, you know, not getting just completely demolished by it. And I, I think part of this problem comes with Democrats being really afraid of their base and just thinking that they're going to get abandoned if they say anything that, you know, the, the people on Twitter are going to get angry about. Um, because in, in I, I guess I shouldn't even say the base. I really think it's just the Twitter mob people is are ruining Democrats' ability to communicate this cycle because so much of what Democrats say, I feel like, is in response to being afraid of being bashed on Twitter, and that they they have to it, they're trying to accomplish way too much with a single answer. They're trying to keep Twitter happy. They're trying to you know actually accurately reflect what their record is, and they're trying to convince moderate, you know, Republicans, swing voters in the suburbs that they're better than their opponent. And that's just too much. You can't, you can't do that. You can't accomplish all these goals and be effective. And I, I think it showed in this debate, unfortunately. Well, and I think that actually gets to a couple ways in which that I think Brian Kemp has done a very effective job in defining Stacey Abrams, particularly carrying over 
the definition of Stacey Abrams that he established in 2018, and that Stacey Abrams then really participated in that by putting a lot of her focus politically on appealing to national progressives, appealing to the Twitter sphere, like you mentioned. Um, two things in which I think that have really backfired on her. To some extent, these are double-edged swords, but I think they've backfired her. And I think the first is her becoming a national political celebrity after 2018. You had obviously gave her what is practically an unlimited fundraising ability in this race. And I can't remember what her numbers are right now, but I think she's just like shattered fundraising records for, especially for a challenger in a state. You know, we are competitive now, just a few years ago, like no national figures were giving this much money to state Democrats in Georgia. Um, but I think that has allowed her, you know, because she, you know, went on Star Trek and she's written all these books and been in national media and spoken to all these national progressive conferences and been on all these national progressive nonprofit boards that she has been allowed to be defined by Kemp and he's taken full advantage of this as somebody who isn't really of Georgia anymore. That he that her loyalties really I shouldn't say her loyalties, but her her focus, her priority of a lot of her time and a lot of her energy has been on what national Democrats are doing, what progressives in Hollywood and New York City care about. I think she's participated in that, and um, I think that has been to her detriment. And then the second thing that I think has unfortunately turned out poorly for her is her the way she handled losing in 2018, and she made what I have said repeatedly were legitimate substantive criticisms of the election system, but that when you play them back now, and when she has been a little more lax in her language in front of progressives by saying that the election was rigged or that it was stolen from her or that she won, that you play those sound bites back now and you can line them up next to Trump sound bites and how unpopular Trump has become in this state for his belief that the 2020 election was rigged against him. And they start to look very similar. They start to look like they have this similar sort of obsession with an election that didn't go well for them and um, that they have a sort of similar kind of cult of personality around them amongst their most fervent supporters. And obviously, I'm not saying here that Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump are the same or that they're even remotely similar. But I think that when you strip it of context and put their statements next to each other and frame them as this, these sort of outside political forces that have uh, priority and focus on a base that's not you, uh, that's effective in um, defining her as somebody who you know, is not relatable, is not really... Uh, a part of this state in the way that that Governor Brian Kemp is. Um, and so I think it's unfortunate for her that those two things worked out that way. And there were, you know, legitimate goals and aims in making both of those decisions and doing pursuing both of those paths after 2018. Um, but I think they've really backfired on her in terms of how she's viewed by voters in this state now. Yeah, I, I agree. And Maybe that's sort of what I'm picking up on is that there is a less Georgianess to her campaign this time, and that I, I do feel like she's having to. Her hag is a lot more in that national space, I think, than it is in the in in the Georgia space, and may you know maybe that divided attention is part of the reason why she hasn't dived as deeply into 
a anti camp camp message and more is you know focused on higging the talking points that she has been higging on this the speaking circuit for the past four years. And I I think it is definitely true that there is far more basis for her to, you know, have her concerns about the 2018 election than Trump with 2020. But, you know, you just got to learn to let these things go at a certain point, And she really hasn't. And the fact that she, again, when faced with this question, did not have a good answer to it is very frustrating to me because the answer here is very simple, which is I worked super hard. I think everyone in Georgia should vote. I think the system makes it way too hard for people to vote and especially people who you know look like me and that I think if everyone could have voted I might I might have won you know and it's so easy to say you know that I was upset and frustrated and so maybe I said it in a way that I shouldn't have but it's way harder to do that when you didn't just say it once you say it over and over again and use the exact same record that Trump said he used and uh, while it is in a very, very different context, it is easy to get mischaracterized. And I think this is just, yet again, another problem that Democrats face this cycle is it's so easy to get taken out of context and to have to have a five-minute explainer before anything you talk about, whereas the Republicans are able to channel cultural and media narratives that are just a lot simpler and I, I think part of this, too, is because for Abrams specifically, she she almost hit on something that I think would have worked and been a lot more effective than what we've seen, which is when she said that Georgia was the worst state in the country. And while I, I think there is way better ways to phrase that, maybe that was the right way to phrase it, because that is a message that is easy to understand. She had pretty good talking points and supporting evidence of why. Uh, she made that statement and it would point directly to Brian Kemp and say, you know, the national environment is what it is, but Georgia is the worst out of 50. And so I feel like we should be doing better. And why haven't you fixed these issues? And I, I think without that unifying frame, it's so much harder to be effective in a fire the incumbent message without something to rally around something that unifies everything you're talking about because just a I think things could be better <laughs> generally and here's how I could make everything better on every single scale you know it's good that you have that plan I think voters like that but as far as sitting down to make a decision it's very hard to do that for many voters be on the basis of you know an hour debate where half the time you don't really know what Abrams is talking about unless you've done all the prep work whereas with Brian Kemp you you get the vibe very easily and you get the direction that he's going with things um, because he keeps it high level but he adds enough detail in there that you, you get a clear picture of what he's working towards well and I mean and I <laughs> We sound very pro-Republican in this episode, but I, I mean, think to I, give... It's not that we're pro-Republican, it's just that they are more effective messengers this cycle, and I think they deserve credit for that, and we should learn from them. So yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not to, being Republican or Democrat, it's it's just, you know, looking at the facts, I think. Yeah, no, I, I mean, to, uh, to give you a sense of sort of the clarity of the message, like if you've been paying attention to Governor Kemp's campaign this year, 
you have heard these messages over and over again. He says this over and over again, that he's done what he said he would do when he campaigned to be Georgia's governor. He's been fighting against 40-year high inflation caused by Biden and the Democrats. And on voting, they've made it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And you can quibble with the details of all of those. There's, you know. And you probably uh, should. Yeah, you should. I mean, there's, there's miss, uh, you know, they're misconstruing a lot of things in that, but you hear those messages over and over and over again. And I, I start to wonder a little bit if governor Kemp might consider higher office after this, because he is, I think it, you know, especially contrary to somebody like Ron DeSantis down in Florida, he has shown himself to be very effective at driving a very simple message. And, uh, getting rid of some of his vulnerabilities that his opponents have tried to throw at him um, because he has endured now two of the nastiest campaigns, particularly 2018, but two of the nastiest campaigns um, that I can remember in terms of just like outright criticism of what he's done. And he's managed to neutralize all of those arguments and in a state that for almost every other candidate has become really competitive. You know, if, if the polls that I've seen lately are to be believed, if they're a, uh, an accurate reflection of how this race turns out. If Kemp wins by seven or eight or nine points in this race, and that's, you know, that's not a foregone conclusion, but if he manages that kind of victory, that is, I think a real political accomplishment. And I think it's owed to his messaging discipline and the, and the clarity of what he's, uh, done in this race, even though he has things that he's done in office that are, that are very unpopular, even among, the voters that are very likely to send him back to the governor's mansion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think, I think at the end of the day, for whatever reason, Abrams is just a lot less effective this time than she was in 18. And I really think it's the fact that between 18 and 22, she really became far more of a national figure than a Georgia figure. Uh, she did, she definitely did not disappear from Georgia by any means, but I mean, I remember us talking about the fact she was going on a, going on a book tour, and I don't think she actually had any stops in Georgia that were at least advertised on it. And it it, it just it's strange, it's very strange because in in democratic circles she was still around, and you'd still see her at events, and you'd still hear what she was up to. But as far as fighting for Georgia to make Georgia better. I feel like 2014 to 2018, it was all Georgia all the time. She had a new Georgia pro project. She maybe Fair Fight existed then. I can't remember. Some, if not Fair Fight, an organization that was very similar to Fair Fight doing, you know, the, the same kind of work. Registering. I think it voters. was New Georgia Project. Yeah, may, maybe I think it was that just was the New Georgia to Fair Fight. Yeah, maybe just New Georgia then. Um, and you could really feel that like Abrams was trying to reshape the Georgia electorate, trying to get a bunch of voters who had not been involved in the process involved and, and contact a lot of people and reach out to people. And like, it, I, I could feel it. I could feel the work that she was doing on the ground. And I just, I have not felt it in, you know, the time from 2018, 2022, it just, just did not see it this time. And I think that's a shame because, um, or excuse me uh, from 2020, 22. Cause the thing I will say too, is like from 2018 to 20, I really felt it then too. I really felt that there was a, 
a ramping up and a some lessons learned from 18. And I really attribute the success of uh, Georgia Democrats in 2020 to the work that Abrams did and the foundation that she built. And I think Warnock and Ossoff and Biden were able to win in 20 and 21 because of the work she did. But but since Biden took office and those elections ended, it, it kind of felt like she was gone and uh, in, in really more of a national figure until she came back to announce that she was running for governor. And I, I think that really, really hurt her uh, campaign because in that interim, you know, Governor Kemp was doing a lot of things and making a lot of news and really, you know, solidifying his brand, I think, whereas hers, um, she, of course, she was getting covered in Georgia, but I saw a lot more national coverage of her than Georgia coverage, to be honest. Well, no, the Georgia coverage was what she's doing on uh, late night shows and book tours. Right. We're not in Georgia because he really did not want to be excluded from this. Let's give Shane Hazel his moment in the sun here. And I will do so by saying that I thought he was a waste of time and space in this debate. And I found him very annoying. And I understand that libertarians uh, are frustrated. That, that is their brand. I understand that they're frustrated. I understand that there are some issues that they feel are not uh, properly considered by the electorate and, and political media and everything generally. And I thought Shane Hazel was just a horrible representation of the fact that maybe we should be paying more attention to some of those issues. I thought he was uh, rude and annoying, and I wished he wasn't there. I, I actually don't disagree with, with that. The only reason I liked him there uh, was that he shook up the script at least a little bit, and he got Abrams and Kemp kind of off their, their talking points by asking them stranger questions. And... The only other thing I think he added to it was just the fact that he, by having such a different ideology than Democrats and Republicans, and had you know, it, as, from the little he displayed, a, a actual more genuine libertarian policy than some other people that run as libertarians, I think it was just valuable to clarify some of uh, the philosophy behind uh, Abrams and Kemp's positions because of how they had to contrast themselves to what he, uh, believes. And, 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 you know, sometimes I feel like the libertarian candidate in Georgia races are just sort of like a, a backup person for the Republicans and just like someone else who will make the same arguments or very similar arguments. And, you know, at least, at least with Mr. Hazel, he did actually attack both of them pretty aggressively and really, went after them in a way that I thought was uh, interesting at times, but usually annoying while also being interesting. So I, I, I think it's good that Georgia includes these folks, generally speaking, um, just because uh, I, I'm, I'm a firm supporter of uh, ranked choice voting. And I, I think just uh, normalizing other parties is probably good in the long term and other uh, ways of, of voting. And, and those candidates are usually, uh, pretty good at talking about those issues and bringing them up. And I, I really, uh, you know, I, I got a kick out of it because so much of this race, I feel like has just been a rehash of 2018 and a little, you know, a little less exciting version because Kemp has seemed to be so in control of everything. And Abrams has had such difficulty breaking through. So maybe this was just my own bias of just <laughs> enjoying a little chaos, but I don't know uh, that that's, there, there's probably better ways to do it than he did, but it's still entertaining to me at least. 
Um, let's close here with uh, taking a look at some of the early vote numbers. Um, you know, at this point, it sounds like we've uh, at least relayed to you listeners the the uh, steep challenges that Democrats have going into November, for particularly for Stacey Abrams, and and now it seems like it'll be competitive for Reverend Warnock too. What did you think about uh, the early num- early vote numbers you've seen, Luke, in terms of the how much how high turnout is, and in which voters are voting in the in the figures we've seen so far? Well, I, I, the vote is way up. Uh, you know, I'm using Georgia Votes, great website, uh, and always enjoy their charts and, and data. And it's 57 percent higher than it was in 2018's general election. We have over eight. Uh, 100,000 voters who have voted so far and uh, compared to 500,000 last time. Um, and I, I just think that's great that one thing I was really worried about with this cycle was that no one would pay attention or care or show up. And it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like people are showing up, at least so far, and those are, are, are great numbers. And I'm hoping that people uh, keep voting uh, because I at least will be a lot less frustrated with this cycle if it's not a cycle like 2010 or 2014 where the electorate just didn't show up and it felt like a more apathetic. Um, and so, uh, hopefully this time it, you know, the, the turnout stays high. The thing I would say will give both Warnock and Abrams a little more hope is that the, um, electorate is, is fairly black so far and, and a little less white than, previous years, uh, even 2020. And so there, there is at least some evidence that the coalitions that the Democrat candidates need to come out are coming out, uh, right now on Georgia votes say that 32.6% of the electorate is black and only 55.5 of the people that voted so far, uh, are, are white. And so that, that will be interesting to keep watching as, as the vote comes in, it usually starts out a little more uh, black and then gets wagger as it goes on. <laughs> so it, it's, it, it's always interesting. And then the last thing I'll say, um, 16.4%, which is 1,000 or and fourteen voters, uh, didn't vote in 18 at all. So nice to see that, you know, pretty sizable chunk of people didn't even vote in the last gubernatorial election. So that it'll be interesting just to see how those numbers shake out. Yeah, I mean, true vindication for Stacey Abrams setting aside messaging challenges would be all the time and money and energy she's invested in turnout operations. And if she, you know, is ultimately able to come out victorious or even uh, keep this thing a lot closer than people expect, I think it does validate at least all that work that her and her organizations did, um, even though there were, at least in our view, some challenges when it comes to messaging in this cycle. Yeah, and... I think it's just worth articulating that Abrams's consistent position is that she is still in a position to win this race and that the uh, polls are doing a bad job of picking up her coalition. And, yeah, that might be true. It was true for Trump <laughs> in, in 2016, and it's been true for other candidates at other times. So it, it is totally possible that maybe she's doing better than we're, you know, we think she is and that um, polls are underestimating her coalition. Uh, I, I could see that being equally true the other way around. But um, for, for now, there's at least some inklings that maybe it won't be as bad. But it's still early. That's why they call it the still early vote. Early. Well, and if you're if you're somebody who's getting out the vote uh, in this race, it's, it's definitely a race that's not over. Continue to knock doors, make the calls. 
uh, do all the things um, because this is going to be close down to the wire. Uh, we are going to leave it there for today. Uh, we'll be back again next week to take a closer look at the down ballot races, attorney general, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, um, some interesting races going on there. Really competitive up and down the ballot, maybe with the exception of secretary of state. We'll talk about that one next week. Um, but it's definitely something to look for. For now, we are going to leave it there. Luke, it was great to get together again, talk some politics. Great to see you. Yeah, great to great to be uh, talking about some interesting races and hear from you again. And uh, as always, go dogs. Go dogs. We'll talk to you all again soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.